today's world, everyone is concerned about where their food supply comes from. At Booth Brothers, it's the same as it was in 1946. 27 local farm families who supply us with quality milk, produced right here in central Vermont. So ask yourself, do you know where your milk comes from? Remember, the next time you're in the dairy aisle, reach for Booth Brothers. You're listening to locally owned and operated 96.1 WDEV FM Warren, FM 96.5 Serving Barry, AM 550 WDEV Waterbury, Montpelier, and Serving the Kingdom at FM 101.9 from Island Pond. It's time to get the story behind the story. Interviews with newsmakers, newsbreakers, and your phone calls. Radio Vermont presents The Mark Johnson Show. Thank you, Jim Condon, and uh, happy birthday to Jim Condon. Thanks for joining us on the program this morning. we got a big program. We're going to get right down to business. Coming up in our second hour this morning, we're going to be joined in studio by blogger John Walters, who writes for the Vermont Political Observer. We're going to continue... The discussion we had yesterday breaking down the Vermont legislative session. We're going to take your phone calls throughout the program as well, too. You can reach us at 244-1777. That's our local number in central Vermont. And you can also reach us on our toll-free lines at 877-291-8255. Well, we're going to get right down to business because our time is short this morning with our guest to uh, say that the world has a water crisis. We hear the word crisis all the time, but I don't think it's overstated in this case. We see it right here at home with our little crown jewel, Lake Champlain, and a water source as well, quite polluted. California, you've all been reading about the drought. Yesterday, I saw this story about the country's second largest reservoir, which is now down about 100 feet, leaving behind a bathtub ring. Across the world, the problems are pretty well known. Eighty percent of the rivers in China are majorly polluted. And more and more water is being treated as a commodity. It's being privatized. The rights to extraction being sold to major companies. We are joined this morning by a real water warrior out there. Maud Barlow has been fighting for uh, accessible and clean water now for decades. She's the author of a trilogy of books on water issues, including her bestseller, Blue Gold, The Fight to Stop the Corporate Theft of World's Water. She's also written Blue Covenant, The Global Water Crisis and the Coming Battle for the Right to Water, and also uh, her most uh, recent book, Blue Future, Protecting Water for People and the Planet Forever. Maud is going to be coming to Vermont. She'll be speaking next Tuesday at the Big Picture Theater. We'll give you details on that. Maud, thank you for joining us. How are you this morning? Oh, I'm delighted to be here, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. Let's uh, let's begin in California. How significant is the problem, and what effect is it going to have on all of us? Well, it's huge. Um, I think it's probably, for many people, the first wake-up call, although if one is watching this around the world, it's certainly not the first wake-up call globally. But for North Americans, I think the... I think the twin stories of Detroit and California, Detroit in terms of the cutoff of water and the lack of human right to water here in North America was one startling story. And then to hear that California is in this kind of crisis, many of us have said for at least a decade it's coming. <clears throat> but we have, <clears throat> excuse me, in our, in our nor- northern thinking, if you will, we have what I call a myth of abundance. We cannot imagine that the world will run out of water. We all learned in about grade six that there's this you know, exact amount of water in, in the hydrologic cycle. We all have this drawing in our head of this earth with this sort of big river around it, and we can't run out. And that 
lesson was wrong, uh, but that lesson has stayed with us in, 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 and, and our leaders, and uh, it is a huge part of the problem. California has engineered its water. It is the primary um, example and the wor- one of the worst examples of taking a place that did have actually enough water if it was cared for <clears throat> and moved it around by aqueducts and pipes and canals from where nature put it to where we want it for whatever purposes we want for in this case you know a very intensive agriculture to supply a lot of the world with <clears throat> with certain commodities um, you know this is a lesson for us to, to learn we have to we have to see this as a wake-up call but believe me California is not the only um, alarm bell going off in the world right now mm-hmm can it be reversed out there <clears throat> I believe that nature, uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins was a great romantic poet, one of my favorite, and he said there's a deep dearness down to nature um, when all is said and done. I think if we allow nature to come back, and I have many examples in my new book, Blue Future, where we're using sometimes kind of tried and true techniques from 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 our knowledge, from more traditional knowledge, of collecting rainwater and harvesting it, and 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 collecting water in lagoons and wetlands, and reestablishing water cycles in 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 water intense you know water intensive landscapes or the the landscapes that have been denuded of their water. Basically, we think of climate change as being the result of greenhouse gas emissions almost exclusively, and then when if we talk about water at all, we say, well, what's the impact? on that warming on water and of course there are impacts back to california the snow you know the snow packs have melted um and they didn't have the 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 runoff this year and that is that's directly from from that kind of global warming the other impact or the other creator of climate chaos is the way we treat water Mm -hmm. and when you remove water from water retentive landscapes or when you remove vegetation from water retentive landscapes you interrupt the local hydrologic cycle I give you two really important examples. One is the Dust Bowl in your country and my country during <clears throat> during the 30s, and we all know that they took down really, really quickly. They took down huge swaths of prairie grassland, and that the topsoil dried up and blew away. Everybody knows that. Everybody thinks that coincidentally there was a terrible drought, and the two things together created the crisis. But this is not true. What we now know is that <clears throat> taking away that grassland meant that the hydrologic cycle got changed and the drought was caused by the removal of that grassland. It wasn't a coincidence that happened to happen at the same time. And so we're learning much more about what happens to the hydrologic cycle when we interrupt it in this way. Second example, and and perhaps even more of a crisis than California, is Sao Paulo in Brazil. Brazil is, until recently, has been considered one of the countries that's most water rich. You name the countries that had water, Brazil was right at the top. They've never had droughts. They don't have them in their history. Um, suddenly droughts everywhere, but a massive drought in Sao Paulo, greater Sao Paulo basin is uh, 40 million people, and they literally think that they could run out within months, even worse than California. Wow. 
Why is this? Well, several reasons. Um, the most important is that they've been cutting down the Amazon. And the rainforests create an enormous amount of moisture, and that moisture is carried in what they call flying rivers of, of humid air because the rainforest creates, a, or the air over a rainforest carries way more humidity than air going over non, non-forested areas. <clears throat> and so this, these flying rivers would, would, would move uh, thousands of miles and then deposit the rain thousands of miles away, cut down the rainforest, the rain goes, Sao Paulo's in crisis. And we're just beginning to understand that we, in, the more modern we get, the wealthier we get, the more sophisticated we get, the more consumer-oriented we get, the more stuff we have, the more we think that nature just is here to serve us as a resource. And water is a resource for our pleasure and our profit, and we can dump what we want in it, and we can do it. We can move it from where nature put it, anywhere that we want it. I quote in the book uh, an advisor to... Um, uh, President Hoover, when they were building the Hoover Dam, and he said that America would be great when she learned to conquer her rivers. Mm-hmm. This notion of conquering water is one that has led us all over the world to this. Just one last stat here. Um, in China, you mentioned in the, your introduction, you mentioned pollution. Well, here's a stat for you. Since 1990, half the rivers in China have disappeared. They're gone. <laughs> They don't know where they've gone, but they're gone. So you can actually take water systems and destroy them. And this is what we need to know. And we who live on and around the Great Lakes, Lake Champlain, these, the St. Lawrence, these massive bodies of water, we just think that we have endless yeah. supplies. And, in fact, the, the story in parts of the world where they did have seemingly endless supplies but no more is an extremely important one for us to learn. I'm going to get back to the supply and the privatization in a minute, but let's talk about Lake Champlain, which has got a phosphorus problem. Is that a reversible problem? They're all reversible, hopefully. There are scientists who say that you can get to a place where a lake is dead. I know Lake Champlain is in very serious trouble. So is Lake Erie. In my country, Lake Winnipeg, which is the 10th largest lake in the world, some scientists already say it's dead. I never believe that. I think that everything is recoverable. But I'm not a scientist. I'm a human rights activist. So, But I have studied the science, and I have studied the environmental uh, realities, and I have seen miracles around the world where we have been able to bring back uh, healthy bodies of water. I, I took a cup in uh, in Europe. There's a, a lake called Lake that Constance, and it is a lake surrounded by four different countries. So it's a jurisdiction of, of four countries. And they came together and said, we're going to bring this lake back to life. And they did. And I took a cup. Somebody said, you can drink this water. And I did. Um, nervously, <laughs> but I did. Uh, so I, I know that it's possible to bring back uh, water systems, but we have to, here's what we have to do, Mark. We have to say that we need a new water ethic, and we need to put, if we understand the nature of the, the global nature of this crisis, <clears throat> and just one stat here that the 
the United Nations on World Water Day in, uh, last month or a month and a half ago said that, um, you know, by 2030, uh, demand in our world will outstrip supply by 40%. So if you really understand what that means and how many people are going to die and what it's going to do to wildlife and to our, our planet and to ecosystems, if you really take that statistic in, then you have to say this is the crisis of our time. And you have to say then how do we avoid it? And that, for me, it means saying we need a new water ethic. That water ethic must put the, the, the protection of watersheds and the protection of water in the center of all policy, the way we grow food, the way we produce energy, um, the, the way we trade. If we, ha- if we had to think about water, we would have different trade agreements, let me tell you. You'd never mm-hmm. have this TTIP with Europe and NAFTA and the, the power that it gives corporations to to sue and own water and, you know, to control water um, and, and exploit, not just, you know, not just control it, but the unlimited exploitation of water. We wouldn't, you, you would have different types of trade agreements if by law you had to put water at the center of all policy and practice. And that is what we have to do. And so that means when we grow food, we have to do it in a way that isn't pumping those nitrates, pumping that phosphorus into uh, our waterways. I mean, we know what we need to do, and yet we don't do it. And we have still, I mean, Vermont is much better than many other parts of the United States in terms of legislation around uh, how food is grown, particularly waste from, you know, chicken feed and and, uh, uh, pork and, and cattle operations and so on. But still, and you do have this new legislation, which is quite exciting. But still in all, we have to be really rigorous. In northern Germany, they have a law that says that the water coming out of the tap has to be clean enough to give to a baby. And that's the standard they use. And anybody who has a farm or a factory or a home anywhere along the the water systems from the Alps that supply the northern Germany uh, has to stick to that standard. And, mm. and that's what you do when you mean it. You yeah. say that this is the way it has to be, and you mean it. And and people will comply. You know, people say, oh, they'll move away. No, they won't. <laughs> You're not going to move away from a place that has fertile soil and beautiful water and a beautiful... Uh, environment like Vermont, you'll 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 do the right thing if you're told you have to do it. Yeah, but you know you got to overcome resistance, and really Vermont acted in large part because it was being threatened by a, a lawsuit. And you write about this problem that people see agriculture as being benign and not really wanting to talk about it. Oh yeah, agriculture is huge, and I love farmers and I love food and I appreciate deeply that they grow our food. So this is not to talk about agriculture in general. This is to talk about the way we have allowed agriculture to move, which is these massive agribusiness farms, um, factory farming, um, chemical-based farming, <clears throat> uh, groundwater, you know, dependent uh, um, um, flood irrigation, using all the techniques that not only use up too much water and destroy water at the same time. We have a model of, of food production that is for a global market. 
and uh, is the enemy of biodiversity, <laughs> is the enemy of local control, organic food, all the way we know that if we grow food and protect local food sources that we're going to also protect water. What people need to, to know more about is something called virtual water. And virtual water is the water embedded in <clears throat> products or commodities, mostly, very importantly, in commodities. And if you export that commodity, corn, beef, ethanol, whatever, if you export that out of your watershed, out of your country, then you're also exporting the water. You may as well be putting a pipe down uh, into the groundwater and pumping it out. I mean, it takes an enormous amount of water to raise cattle. It takes enormous amount of water to produce rice, to produce uh, almonds, which is one of the big mm-hmm. issues in California, and they produce now 80% of the, the almonds for the world in one of the parts of the world that's drying up doesn't make a lot of sense so we need to start asking these questions the the UN has had a certain amount of, of um, um, an assessment of what the average use of daily use of water around the world is, but really you need to, to, to multiply that by tenfold if you want to include the virtual water we all use. So if you're just using if you're just using the measurement of the water you use during the day in your tap, uh, you know, in cooking and your garden and so on, okay, that's a certain amount. But the real amount of water that we all use, if you take into account the water that was used to produce our computers and our phones and our cars and our food and our clothing, it's ten times that. And that's the story. That's why we have to ask this. Is globalization the enemy of water protection? Are these never, ever expanding trade agreements that expand the whole notion of, of, of market movement? Are they the enemy of the environment? And in many, many ways they are. We're talking with human rights activist Maud Barlow. You wrote in your book Blue Gold, you talked about how there was a fairly significant citizen movement back against the corporations owning the water rights. Um, How's that battle going? It's, you know, raging. Uh, we basically created a movement. Basically, we said, okay, if it's if it's so that the that there is a finite amount of water and it's under threat, we have to take care of it. And the best way to do that is exactly what Vermont has done under the leadership of the Vermont Natural Resources Council, and that is to declare both the surface water and the groundwater to be a public trust. Um, and and the and the owners are the people of Vermont and the future and the ecosystem. That's who quote owns the the water. But that's not the way it is in many parts of the world. In most parts of the world, it's, there's still a free-for-all. And so we realized that the, there were large private interests who would say, you know, I want to control much more of the world's water because whoever does is going to be both wealthy and powerful. So there are a number of ways in which privatization takes place. Services, of course, running water in in cities and municipalities, um, water and wastewater treatment, and that boomed during the 1990s and the first part of this century. But there's been a huge fight back, and about 250 municipalities have brought that tried privatization have brought their water back into under public hands including i think it's over 60 municipalities in the u.s so that's quite an exciting trend the bottled water trend i mean that exploded it used to be that was just sort of in you know vichy water from france kind of thing and then all of a sudden you've got a generation of kids who grew up with a bottle of water always at their hip uh, I call it their hydrating tool. You know, they can't imagine walking. I remember saying to 
one high school class. I know you're going to have a hard time believing this, but there was a time when we would leave our home and go out and venture out without a bottle of water right on our head, right? It's just like, it can be done sort of thing. Um, so that's a struggle. But we do have a number of campuses, uh, particularly around North America, that are going bottled water free and a number of municipalities that are banning the, produ- the sale of bottled water, they're not saying you can't bring it onto municipal property, but we're not going to provide it. Um, <clears throat> we're also fighting water trading where uh, licenses are, or permits are, com- are converted to actual property. This is the story in Australia. It's the story in Chile. It's the story in parts of the United States, basically in California and Texas. Um, there's, they're allowed to, you're allowed to buy up water. And if you own the water rights, if you got those water rights, those prior rights because of the legislation that exists and existed originally to try to bring people west, right, mm-hmm. and businesses west, um, then you, and you have extra water, you can sell it. And so that's one of the newer frontiers in terms of, of, uh, of water, uh, of, of privatization that, that we're, we're struggling with. And I just want to go back to these trade agreements because one of the things that they do is they allow, once something has been privatized, it's very, very hard to go back because these corporations can sue, like under NAFTA and under TTIP, the European-U.S. agreement that's being negotiated now, you really, once you've privatized a water service, it would be hard to go back. But here's what most people don't know. We now have a precedent where a corporation from one country can actually claim to own the water that it uh, it, it, that it is using in its operation in another country. <clears throat> a company called Abitibi Bowater, which is an American pulp and paper company, was operating in Newfoundland for, for decades, went bankrupt, left, they restructured themselves, and they left their debt and all the pensions unpaid and so on in Newfoundland, then turned around and said, well, we're, we want to be paid for the water rights but we left behind in the the premier of Newfoundland said, no way, that water is ours, and you got to use it, but no, <laughs> go away. So they launched in that Chapter 11 under NAFTA, and our, the Canadian government gave them $130 million wow. for the water rights they left behind. So if you had, for instance, a Canadian bottled water company uh, operating in Vermont, um, and you were to bring in legislation to charge money for that or to shut them down or to limit the expansion or whatever, they would have the right to challenge that, but they'd also have the right to claim ownership of the water that they've been using. So it's really important that we understand the many, many creeping ways in which privatization and private ownership, not only of water, but all our natural resources is taking place. And that we're, <clears throat> that's why I go back to Vermont's legislation, which I was quite involved in. I, I um, came down several times and gave talks and spoke to your legislature yeah. and um, worked with uh, VCNR and, and uh, feel very strongly that this is a wonderful example for the the whole country. I mean, California should be bringing in the same law, and they should stand the torpedoes and say, "Okay, there'll be court cases up the, you know, the yin yang." But you, you, we've got to do it right. Um, this is an example of where you just state the water doesn't cannot belong to the private sector. The private sector has a right to use it, of course, but that it, it, it is a public trust. And the public trust, I mean, water is a public trust and water is a human right. And we have to put those concepts at the very center of the way we manage water 
And at the same time, we have to recognize that water has rights, too, and bring in laws that are compatible, human laws that are compatible with the laws of nature. What would nature teach us? How would nature teach us to, to, to uh, behave? <laughs> um, and I, I think these are, these are we're, we're moving slowly in this direction, but we're moving in this direction because we have to. Last question. You know, one of the questions that wasn't really settled here in Vermont with the groundwater is is whether companies should pay for extractions. And I would imagine that when you talk about the public-private um, tension there, that if you're going to pay for the rights, then you're going to want that water. Well, <clears throat> it's a really delicate um, tension. I think, first of all, the question is, who, as a public trust, we are the owners of the water, who are we going to allow to have access to it? That's the first question. Are we going to allow fracking? Are we going to allow bottled water? I would say in the, both cases, no. You know, why would we <clears throat> allow this lovely water to be used for and poisoned for fracking? And, and if clean tap water is coming out of our taps, why would we... Why would we use our, our groundwater for that? And that's a big issue, by the way, in California. <clears throat> but once you have established that, um, you know, you are certain industries and certain private sector realities that need water are going to be able to ha have access, then <clears throat> I think what you want to establish is if you're going to charge a service charge or like a royalty or a permit fee, it has to be clear that it's not the ownership of the water. It's it's an access. It's you're paying a royalty <clears throat> for the right to access it. And I think if the legislation is written very clearly, then it makes it much more difficult under a trade agreement for a company then to say what we own it. It was a bad precedent that Canada allowed to happen. We were very upset about it. <clears throat> we have a government here who thinks corporations are you know the sun rises and sets on them. So whatever they want, they get. Um, and it's a bad precedent. Um, but I do think that we need to approach the question of, you know, who's access, who has access to this raw water, our collective public trust raw water. <clears throat> now, let's have a discussion about who we want to have access to it. And then once we've established, you know, kind of the ethical parameters there, then whatever is charged to them so that, you know, so something is returned to the public that, the owners owners of the water um that it's very clear that it's a permit fee and it's not a um it's not a it's not ownership you're not it's not a license to property mm -hmm. we need to be very clear get our smart lawyers uh, putting that kind of language together i lied i have one more question when you served as the senior advisor of water to the u.n general assembly president what do you think you accomplished in that or was it just a maddeningly frustrating job no, it was one of the most wonderful times of my life. First of all, I was a volunteer, um, uh, so it wasn't a job per se, but it was a, a, a wonderful assignment. It was the 63rd president of the General Assembly, and he was a, he is a wonderful man, a, a priest from Nicaragua, um, deeply committed to human rights. And he and I and a man named Pablo Solon, who was the ambassador from Bolivia at the time um, to the UN, put a team together, and we, we forged a resolution that was adopted, oh my goodness, it'll be five years this July. It was July 28, 2010 at the UN. The UN General Assembly recognized the human right to water and sanitation. Water hadn't been in the original uh, Universal Declaration on Human Rights back in 1948, because at the time nobody could imagine you know, water was a, or lack thereof, was a human rights issue. So it wasn't left out deliberately. It wasn't in anybody's consciousness. But for at least 15, 
I'd say even 20 years, we have recognized that there's a growing need to articulate that no one should have to watch their child die from waterborne disease. And it's hitting North America. I just saw a story this morning, 1,600 homes are being uh, cut off in, uh, in uh, Baltimore. Is spreading uh, in through the austerity measures in in Europe. They're cutting off thousands of families um, to to water and electricity. So, you know what seemed to be very far away a long time ago is not far away anymore. And so, what we have established is that everyone has the right, fundamental right, human right to water, for life, for daily needs, and uh, we need to really make that that real. But yes, that that's what was the culmination of of uh, my my assignment there and it was deeply moving i was just there back to the un two weeks ago to speak on in harmony with nature the whole concept of the rights of nature but building on this notion of the human right to water and then extending it saying well what other creatures have rights to water too and, and can we can we enlarge our thinking beyond us to you know, to the planetary needs, to the needs of the ecosystem. So, um, yeah, it was a wonderful time. It, it was kind of serendipitous that this wonderful person was appointed or elected that year, um, had read my books and said, come work with me. So, yeah, it was a little piece of magic that might not have happened under any other circumstance. And now we have... You know, now we have this right established, and it's being used in courts, and it's being, you know, governments, some governments are actually taking it very, very seriously. The United States has ratified it, by the way, because it it was, it, the U.S. and Canada both abstained in the vote that day, but two months later, the Human Rights Council adopted a, a resolution, similar resolution, and then articulated what it meant in terms of government obligations, and the U.S. was newly seated on the Human Rights Council and supported it, so. It's largely unknown in the U.S. that that this happened and that the U.S. is now supporting it. And I think it's a real part of this, should be part of the story in places like uh, uh, Detroit and Baltimore where, where people are having their water cut off. Well, I mean, how do you abstain on something like that? I mean, you can vote no, but I mean... It's, it's I know. Well, my country, back to my bad country, we, uh, my government led the fight against it. They were totally vociferous and vocal. I couldn't believe they abstained. And I remember people were saying to Ambassador Solon, well, you should take out sanitation or you should soften the language or you should say, oh, we should try to work uh, towards... And he said, no, 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 no. I'm, I want to see which countries are going to vote against the human right to water. I'm curious as to who is going to vote against the human uh, right to water. Take out um, And in the end, none of them did. 41 abstained. 122 countries voted in favor. It was a, a moment of pure magic. Thank you for your time this morning. Safe travels to Vermont. Thank you so much. Nice to talk to you, Mark. We'll you talk too. again. Maud Barlow is uh, the author of a number of books on water issues. She is a uh, human rights activist. Let me give you some of the information about the event coming up next week. Next Tuesday at the Big Picture Theater in Waitsfield, it's really going to, the event's going to start in the afternoon here. It's entitled Blue Future. It's all about water. Yeah, yeah it is all about water. Uh, the afternoon starts at 4 o'clock with a uh, a film, then there's going to be a question and answer session after that. Maud Barlow speaks at 7 o'clock uh, in the evening with the issue Protecting Water for People and the Planet Forever. Uh, this is a free event, again, uh, and it's going to be at the Big Picture Theater coming up on next Tuesday, not tonight, next Tuesday.
All right, let's go to Corinth Forbes. I'm sorry I couldn't get you in. I, my time is a little short with our guest, um, but I'm sure you have something brilliant you want to add anyway. Yeah, there's no problem there. Um, we always seem to uh, act in a crisis mode. But for yeah. 40, 40 <laughs> years, uh, the Navy and other military facilities have desalinized, and a lot of other countries have too. Mm-hmm. We've got an ocean that uh, notably is rising by one foot a year, taking a waterfront, shorefront. A tremendous resources. Why aren't we uh, implementing um, desalinization? Well, a little I've read about it because I was actually reading about it when I was out in California because they're looking to that, either that or a big giant pipe coming down from from Washington State is really their one of their solutions. These things take an enormous amount of energy to run. I mean, it just it's it's um, almost sort of the you know the corn ethanol question of are you using so much so many resources to grow the product and then put back into the car you know these things i guess it's not a it's not a technique that's been perfected i know they do it for example over in saudi arabia over in the persian gulf i think they're a little ahead of us on this but that you know i was reading about this plant in california and oh my gosh i mean for one thing it's enormous and, uh, you know, um, as I say, I mean, it, it's a lot of power, and it's not just you turn on a switch and you've got, you got uh, you know, clean, fresh water coming out the other end. No, that's true, but I don't, I don't know of a, a commodity in our, our lifestyle that uh, uh, is more important than water. And we, we have some pretty good technology in, in this country. We have a Corps of Army Engineers. We have military people. We have a lot of resources, it seems, that could address this, because the uh, shortage of water isn't going to disappear overnight. No. Nope. There's no real quick solution to it. No, we're and as, you know, our guest was mentioning, I mean, we're living in a little bit of fantasy land here in Vermont. You know, we think we think everything's okay, and, you know, we've got Lake Champlain. Our biggest issue is pollution, not access, per right. se. But, wow, I mean, some of these other places in the world, when she talked about how China, which is, I mean, you know, the rivers is just garbage floating down. I mean, and they're, they're different colors than what you've ever seen in any American river. But this idea that they're just kind of disappearing, you know, we've kind of done the same thing to the Colorado, you know? I mean, these rivers that don't actually now reach the ocean. Well, New England, too, uh, and it's heyday of industry and uh, paper mills and things like that. Um, yeah. You know, all of our rivers were... Pretty bad. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, I know I've told this story too many times. I'm starting to sound like one of those people that, you know, when, when I grew up, dot, dot, dot. But honest to goodness, there was this river where I grew up that had a paint factory. Every 4 o'clock, every afternoon, they blow the whistle, and this river would turn like 17 different colors. It was like the rainbow. Right. And we used to hang out down by the river because that's what kids do. And every once in a while, one of our knucklehead friends would fall in. One kid came out. And looked like, you know, he'd been uh, put through, you know, a, a radiation uh, test or something. So, and now that river today, you can swim in it. I mean, it just blows my mind every time I go by there to think that I could actually get out of the car and, and jump in there, which I would never do. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, right. it is, well, it does. Mother it Nature is amazing. The, uh, but, but again, we, we seem to only act in the in um, 11th hour yeah. in a crisis situation. Oh, well, I mean, you know, uh, you heard her praising this legislation that just passed, and, you know, maybe what I'm hopeful is that maybe it's a, 
a you know curve turner here. Uh, but, you know, it was done with uh, basically a gun to the head of uh, Vermont political leaders with, uh, you know, the EPA breathing down their neck. I mean, it's not like this is a new problem. I mean, people have been talking about it. Environmentalists have been talking about it for decades. And then all of a sudden, magic this year was the big problem. So you're right. I mean, I'm giving you credit here. Total reaction. That's how we operate as humans. We put up the traffic light. We put up the stoplight when three kids get killed in an intersection. All right. Well, food for thought. Thanks for your call. That's our local number in central Vermont. You can also reach us toll-free at 877-291-8255. Lest you think there is no hope, though, uh, one of the things I did note with this event that uh, Maud is going to be speaking at, that she is going to be talking about solutions and uh, positive things here for the future. So uh, do not lose total faith out there. We'll take a short break. We'll be back after these important announcements. During the Drive and Discover event at Midstate Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram, discover why Midstate has the most sought-after vehicles. Experience the excitement of driving a Jeep Wrangler with the top down. Feel the power of our legendary Hemi engine in a Ram truck or hit the street with the bold look of a Dodge Challenger. And of course, we have America's number one minivans, the Chrysler Town & Country and Grand Caravan. Best of all, we have some great deals like a brand new 2015 Jeep Patriot for under $14.5, but only while they last. Put the fun back into driving and discover the hottest vehicles at Midstate Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram, halfway between Barry and Montpelier on Route 302. At Midstate Dodge and Hyundai, we make it easy every day. Better prices, better quality, better service, come in and see. At Midstate Dodge and Hyundai, we make it easy. Are you a flavor junkie? Do you have discerning taste or just really opinionated taste buds? Well, if so, and you're 18 or older, the Keurig Green Mountain Sensory Test Center wants to hear from you. Join us at our facility in Waterbury Center for ongoing tasting sessions. And be the first to experience innovative foods, beverages, and other products before you see them in the grocery aisle. Tasting sessions happen every week and only take 30 to 45 minutes. Each time you visit, you'll receive rewards such as Amazon gift cards and Keurig.com discounts, plus incentives to shop and eat locally while you're in town. Who doesn't want the opportunity to have fun and get rewarded at the same time? All you have to do is tell us what you think. There's no experience necessary to participate. You just need to be 18 or older and love trying new things. Become a Keurig Green Mountain taste tester today and let your voice be heard. Give us a call at 882-2500, and don't forget to tell your friends. We're inviting you in to see why customers keep coming back year after year. It's not only our great lease deals, like $184 a month on 2015 Forrester. But for the customer service as well. Twin City Subaru was fantastic. From friendly, welcoming, informative, and patient salesmanship to owner loyalty programs and clear pricing and options. We didn't think we could enjoy the experience of buying a car, but Twin City made it so. Twin City gave us a great price and had great customer service. The overall experience was truly enjoyable. Twin City Subaru has the best products and the best people, not to mention a great service department. Click on TwinCitySubaru.com to see more about our happy customers. Call 1-800-696-7550 to speak with a sales staff rated number one in customer satisfaction. Or drive I-89 to exit 7 on the Berlin Mall Road. We're just minutes off the highway. Twin City Subaru, driving to be Vermont's number one Subaru dealer. 
You have a basic idea of how you want your completed new kitchen and bath project to look and to function, but the selection of products available to achieve your goals is seemingly endless. It's not enough to visit a big showroom and ask assistance from a sales clerk. This is Dana Wiles at the Country Home Center. We're tucked away in Morrisville, but many of Vermont's leading contractors agree that Country Home Center's kitchen and bath inventory and design service is one of the finest in the area. Brian Hill heads up our kitchen and bath design team. They know what products are available to meet your tastes, needs, and budget. From consultations in the store and at your home, they'll create 3D full-color designs of your proposed project. They'll be with you from concept to completion. Email Brian Hill, spelled with a Y, at brianhillchc at comcast.net. Your new kitchen or bath begins and ends at Country Home Center. Visit us at countryhomecenter.net. And if you look out the window to the left, you'll see the historic Mount Rushmore. Up next is Mount Savemore. Mount Savemore? Wait, are those Hondas embedded in the rock face? Glorious, isn't it? The Honda Memorial Day sales event is so good, a giant limestone monument was erected in its honor. Really take in the patriotic curves of the 2015 Accord, Civic, and Pilot. All three can be financed at 0.9% APR for well-qualified buyers. It's beautiful. Is that still going on? For a limited time. Can we go? But, but the tour! All right, but no flash photography. The salespeople spook easily. Right now, get financing as low as 0.9% APR for well-qualified buyers on a Honda. KBB.com's best overall brand. To learn more, visit your local North Country Honda dealer or online at NorthCountryHondaDealers.com. Based on 2015 Brand Image Awards from Kelly Blue Book, visit KBB.com for more information. See dealer for financing details. Two four four seventeen seventy seven is our local number in central Vermont. You can also reach us on our toll-free lines at 877-291-8255. Looking for a great place to go for lunch today? When at the, head down and see our friends at Red Hand Cafe and Bakery right off of Interstate 89, exit 9 in Middlesex. You could have a fabulous sandwich, one of their great soups they make each and every day. One's always vegetarian. And uh, desserts are really what it's all about. Red Hand Cafe and Bakery, where you can have one of those fabulous whoopie pies. They're great granola bars. They make some, you know, I never mention the cookies because it just seems so obvious that you would already know that Red Hand Cafe and Bakery would have great chocolate chip cookies, ginger cookies, uh, oatmeal raisin cookies, and there's usually one or two others that are kind of a special one-of-a-kind uh, item that you will find at Red Hand Cafe and Bakery. Stop there, too, on the way home. Pick up a nice, fresh loaf of bread while you're uh, wandering home. And you can find Red Hand Cafe and Bakery right off of Interstate 89, exit 9, and that's in Middlesex, where there is no bridge construction going on. And we always appreciate when you stop down and see our friends at Red Hand Cafe and Bakery that you mentioned that you heard about them right here on the program. 244-1777 is our local number. Toll-free 877-291-8255. Any thoughts, comments on our first guest this morning, human rights activist Maud Barlow? Love to hear what you have to say about that. Maybe you have some thoughts, comments you would like to share about the recently concluded first half of the legislative session. Biggest disappointments, biggest accomplishments. Maybe you'd like to weigh in on that. Coming up next hour, we'll talk with political reporter John Walters, who writes for the Vermont Political Observer, who actually saw kind of a mixed bag as, uh, uh, when his analysis of it. So we'll chat with him 
coming up uh, next hour. Uh, speaking of politics, listen to this one that will get unveiled today from presidential candidate Bernie Sanders. Still still uh, letting that one roll off the tongue here. So uh, Bernie not only wants to make uh, college affordable for um, kids out there who, gosh, I mean, it is just crushing the debt that you have when you get out of college these days. Not only does he want to make it affordable, he wants to make it free. This would apply uh, his idea only to uh, public uh, colleges and universities. And here is uh, – so I'm not sure – you know, I have to find out about this. I'm not sure whether – where a UVM would actually fit into this because, as we know, um, here's my cheap shot of the day. They're, they're private when they want to be private, and they're public when they're looking for money. Um, uh, all right, so I'm 45 minutes into the show, and I used up that already. Wow. All right. So here's the – so I don't – my point is I don't know whether or not when they say a four-year public college or university, because I've seen other articles refer to this more talking about places like Vermont Tech, you know, um, community colleges, things like that, where you would have um, – and Bernie has talked about in the past having this apply to only freshmen and sophomore, but now he's apparently extending the idea to uh, to four years and here's here's the idea. So you're, and, and he wants uh, he wants it to be free. So we're talking. I think the number I saw is eighteen billion dollars that this would cost. So where do you come up with eighteen billion dollars these days? Well, if you're Bernie Sanders and you think that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer and that the people on Wall Street are making out like bandits, can you believe yesterday another record high? Wow. So Bernie's idea is to have a 50-cent tax on every $100 of stock trades on stock sales and lesser amounts on transaction involving bonds, derivatives, and other financial instruments. So a 50-cent tax on $100 worth of stock trades. Uh, That's interesting, isn't it? So what do you think of that idea? I mean, that could actually, if you start thinking about that, that could uh, add up pretty darn quickly here. So there is a group called the Robin Hood Tax on Wall Street that uh, said in a press release the following here. The Robin Hood Tax would also slow the growth of automated high-frequency trading, which makes the stock market more dangerous. A small tax would make risky HFT unprofitable, that's high-frequency trading, and help reduce the excess speculation on commodities like food and gas that drive up prices, which will protect the economy from computer-generated collapses and market manipulation. Ugh, I wish I'd grabbed this number before I started talking about this story. But there is the number of Wall Street transactions every day that are done by machines versus humans is alarming. I mean, most of the trades on Wall Street are not done by, you know, kind of low-level types like you and me here. It's these computers, many of them hooked into hedge funds and large institutional investors that when the price hits a certain number, they sell in some cases, if it dips and then it goes, they'll buy it back up. Uh, and an awful lot of this, as I say, is being done without really anybody looking at it. 
there is also this whole other world of mischief that goes on where there are people that buy and sell stocks who, in essence, make the market for it, who are able to do these trades because they get split second, like a half, you know, half a second advance on what's going on with these stocks. And they're basically using, let me see if I can simplify this because it was a, it's a whole book that Michael Lewis wrote. So what they're basically doing is using the power of computers to be able to do high speed trading and to take advantage of the small differences that you see in stock trades in a, throughout the course of the day and are uh, doing this in such a high volume of purchases that they're able to take very, very small differences in the price, exaggerate them, put the money in their pocket. And uh, as this group is noting here, there are some that really believe this practice is very dangerous and is, uh, is, is not one that is really driven by events or even, you know, human, uh, you know, the, what happens when humans gamble. I mean, it's really being done by machines. And it's um, and, and this problem that Michael Lewis writes about is really um, manipulation of the system. It's people that have uh, a distinct advantage. I mean, when everybody has the same information, then it's a level playing field. But when you get information on which direction a stock is going ahead of everybody else that's not fair that's as that's as unfair as getting uh you know insider trading information finding out companies earnings for example ahead of time uh so here's let me give you some more of this um so uh senator sanders said this about this on sunday when he kind of outlined this he said we live in a highly competitive global economy and if our economy is to be strong we need the best educated workforce in the world that will not happen if every year hundreds of thousands of bright young people cannot afford to go to college and if millions more leave school deeply in debt. Any thoughts, comments on this idea? I'd be curious to know what you think about this. 50 cents, uh, a, a uh, tax of 50 cents for every $100 worth of stock uh, traded. Oh, boy, I got to say that—that's an idea. I don't know if the power—the the powers that be—are going to be all that in favor of that idea. Coming up on the uh, program tomorrow and Thursday, I'll be in uh, Burlington. It's the Vermont Business Annual, the Vermont Business and Industry Expo. We got a uh, usual great lineup of guests. We'll also be telling you all about the uh, this year's Dean Davis Award winner. Wow, here was a wild story I ran across this morning. Name uh, Ilian Gonzalez ring a bell to you? You know how old this kid is? John, here's your get quiz question for today. So guess how old this kid is. Has he turned 30? <laughs> well, not quite. He's 21. <laughs> that was good. So, <laughs> I mean, it seems like just yesterday, doesn't it? Like the, that the kid was down in uh, Little Havana, down in uh, just south of Miami there. And remember the uh, the infamous scene with the commandos coming in and uh, extricating the kid in uh, the middle of the night. You know, I had to actually go back and refresh my memory here about how that court case actually got settled out. And the bottom line was, you'll recall the story of Ilian Gonzalez was that he and his mother were fleeing Cuba. His mother dies en route 
alien is in this like inner tube and is somehow uh, manages to stay alive and is also saved by that fisherman. Then there is this whole dispute, this whole you know, basically a custody dispute that involved his father being back in Cuba, wanting him back, and Castro, you know, demanding it too. And then you had the relatives in uh, Little Havana who wanted to keep Elian with them and keep him in the United States. Ultimately, he went back. I mean, I remember the, the issues and the argument in the case basically boiled down to, you know, parental rights. There was a big discussion about that. So now he is 21 years old. He can, uh, he's apparently allowed uh, to go and visit anywhere that he would like. And he says if he could go anywhere, that he wants to go to the United States. He, uh, this is a piece by the Associated Press, says uh, the following. This is a, an interview that's going to be broadcast on um, uh, last night, apparently. He thanked the American people for the love they showed him during the custody battle 16 years ago. God, how time flies. And said he would like to go back, quote, to give my love to the American people. Guess which sporting event he would like to attend more than anything else. Yeah, you guessed it, a baseball game. Also wants to visit the Washington Museums and talk to Americans. Quote, I could personally thank those people who helped us, who were there by our side, because we're so grateful for what we did. And there's uh, there are a couple of pictures of him that are in this story that I'm looking at here. He, you would definitely pick him out of a lineup as being a grown-up Ilian Gonzalez. Oh my gosh, he looks exactly the same as he did when he was five or six years old. So here's, the, uh, here's what's happened to him since. He was a military cadet when he was in his late teens. He's now studying industrial engineering at the university in the province, Cuban province of Matanzas, which is west of the capital, and he recently became engaged to be married. So that's, um, uh, oh, he talks a little bit about his mother here. He survived by clinging to an inner tube and eventually ended up in Florida with relatives who fought to keep him in the U.S. Quote, I was alone in the middle of the sea. That's the last thing I remember, he said. He uh, was moved by his mother's mother's efforts to keep him afloat while she drowned. Quote, she fought until the very last minute to keep me alive. So that's the uh, that's the latest on Ilian Gonzalez. My goodness. I mean, 21 years old. Unbelievable. Coming up next hour, we talk with uh, John Walters. Uh, he is over the age of 21, as am I. And uh, if you are, uh, actually, you can call this program if you're under 21, too. We'll, uh, love to hear from you this morning. You can reach us at 244-1777. That's our local number, toll-free, 877-291-8255. A moment of your time for our friends at the Vermont Coffee Company. It is coffee roasted for friends. This is a great business success story out of Middlebury. They started down in Bristol, expanded their headquarters now over in Middlebury where they are uh, cranking out the product on a pretty record basis here and supplying many, many stores out there, which you could be frequenting. They carry the product now in the Shaw's and the Hannaford's at all the independent grocery stores, all of your favorite co-ops. And how easy is this? If you can't find the product at the store that you like to go to, and it is amazing in you know, uh, the short amount of time 
the blink of an eye that we've been promoting this product, I mean, the number of places that it is now available. I used to get one sheet. I could tell you all 10 or 15 places in the same ad. I wouldn't even try to do that now. But you can, uh, if you can't find it for some reason in the store that you usually frequent, uh, I would encourage you, you can always purchase the product by going to their website, and that is vermontcoffeecompany.com. That is also the easiest way for you to get it to your friends and relatives who do not, for some reason, live here in this state. You know, people love getting Vermont products. This is a great signature product. It's a nice gift, and it's one that shows up with the great aroma that it has even before you open the box. Vermont Coffee Company Coffee, it is coffee roasted for friends. We're going to check in with our White House crew to begin hour number two. Then uh, we're going to be joined by political blogger John Walters will be joining us on the program. Yesterday we had a pretty robust discussion with Ann Galloway of Vermont Digger and Neil Goswami of the Vermont Press Bureau. Uh, and I'm sure that we will continue on that front. And we would love to hear from you, your participation. Welcome at 244-1777. That's our local number. Toll free, 877-291-8255. News is coming your way next, and keep your dial right here. This is FM 96.1 WDEV Warren, broadcasting from the top of Sugarbush. FM 96.5 in Barry and Montpelier. 101.9 in the Northeast Kingdom and AM 550 WDEV, Waterbury, Montpelier. News coming away shortly.